Mark Mothersbaugh and B.D. Wolf would love you to contribute to a new collective art demonstration. Postcards for Democracy. In support of our beloved, yet neglected, United States Postal Service. And our fundamental right to vote. So Mark, how can people get involved? Easy. Just buy a stamp, design your postcard, and mail it to 8760 West Sunset Boulevard. For more information on how to join this artful demonstration, visit postartfordemocracy.com. And And don't don't forget forget to vote. Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on DubLab. And today I'm joined by multi-award-winning technology correspondent, Ina Freed. Ina, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, BD, any reason to chat with you? So Ina started her career as senior editor for All Things Digital, Recode, and spent a decade at CNET covering, amongst other things, the early tech scene, including chief players, Microsoft and Apple. Ina is currently the chief technology correspondent at Axios and brings years of Silicon Valley experience to offer a smart take on tech. She's a frequent commenter on technology news on national public radio, television, and for other print and broadcast outlets. And also, I I should mention a former national board member for the LGBT Journalists Association. Ina is also an inductee for its 2016 Hall of Fame. Um, so, Ina, once again, thank you so much for being on the show. So tell me, how how have you been finding, you know, lockdown and how are you feeling about the sort of impending <laughs> election? It's hard. I mean, it's it's been a really challenging time. I feel super fortunate. Um, you know, I have our health as a family. Um, we've been healthy. Uh, my job is good. So I feel very fortunate comparatively. You know, and it's tough. We have a seven-year-old and being a parent uh, through this is tough. It's tough to steer your family, especially a young one, through so much uncertainty. Um, and just every little day things, everyday things are so much harder. Uh, you know, even if it's just going to the store, there's so many more things you have to think about and, you know, trying to stay sane in this political climate. And of course, being a journalist, I can't really turn it off for work. So I have to find, uh, ways of coping. I'm trying to use art and music and writing as ways to, uh, hopefully stay relatively healthy through all this, uh, mentally as well as physically. Because I imagine work probably hasn't let up in any way for you. It's, it's, I imagine it's just got more intense. Yeah, no, I mean, you're basically merging several of the biggest uh, challenging reporting topics of my lifetime, from covering the Trump administration to the climate crisis to, you know, life in the pandemic. I mean, any one of these things would have been uh, the biggest story of my career. And I'm a tech journalist, but all of these things have dramatically changed life in general and for the industry I cover. Um, that said, you know, it's been fascinating and I feel really fortunate to work at an outlet that's giving us the resources to cover these very challenging times uh, in, in ways that are hopefully helpful uh, to the public. And our whole founding principle at Axios was, you know, the idea that we were going to be com- bombarded with more information than we could possibly process as individuals and that we would need to be able to turn to subject matter experts to help us get smart in the areas we don't know about. I think that was true then, but it's obviously so much more true now. I count on my colleagues to keep me up to speed on areas like science and healthcare and uh, space that I don't have time to follow. And uh, hopefully I can do the same for them around technology and for our broader readers. 
Well, I I feel like if anyone can, you can. Um, so you and I met originally um, at DLD, Digital Life Design, in, was it 2015, 16, I feel? Yeah, a few years back. I couldn't tell you which year, but definitely remember uh, being in the hallway and uh, hearing about your your work at the time, combining tech and music and being fascinated. And obviously we've stayed in touch and grown closer since. Yeah, and you know, feel very lucky to be able to call you a friend. So, um, so the the subject of this show, you know, it's orange juice for the ears. Um, it's taken from a line by neurologist Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep that really goes. And uh, the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just have to ask you, Ina, what does that quote mean to you? I mean, it just resonates so much. I think music is one of these profound things. We all have different taste in music, uh, but I don't know anyone that doesn't turn to music as a as a way of healing, as a way of celebrating the highs, lamenting the lows. Um, it, it's just such a powerful, universal human experience and has been for so long uh, and it's obviously changed forms and we have access to more music um, but in every step of my life um, I feel like music has been there even though I'm I don't consider myself musically gifted in any way I am a poor player of you know a couple instruments very badly <laughs> um, and I don't think I have a very good ear I wish I could sing I can't sing um, but even with all those deficits I feel like what I can do is really soothe my soul through music. And what's nice is you don't need any talent for that. And you can find whatever speaks to you. Absolutely. And neurologically, music imprints on the brain deeper than any other human experience. So we we really are a musical species. And that isn't dependent on whether we play an instrument or sort of assess you know, our musical taste as being like, Good, And I, I think that, that that's what this show is really about. It's about sort of breaking down some of that and just looking at, you know, remarkable people in different industries and their musical DNA and the music that has, you know, shaped part of who they are. Um, so with that in mind, um, what was the first track that imprinted on you? You know, it's hard. I remember the first music I used to listen to was my dad's country music on the radio and it didn't really... You know, I listened to it and I, I think I liked it, but that just meant I liked sharing something with my dad. It didn't really take. I think it was when I got my first few pop cassettes and I remember, and I think I still have the first three or four cassettes that I got. Um, there was a Whitney Houston album, there was a Michael Jackson thriller, and there was this culture club, Color by Numbers, uh, which even though I had no idea I was trans, uh, I think spoke to me in some uh some way, uh, or at least, you know, left a seed, like, I'll be here when you need me. So I, I definitely remember that album, both the, the, the main tracks, the deep cuts, uh, the fact that color was spelled with a U, which uh, some folks uh, from your side of the pond are fond of doing. <laughs> okay, perfect. So we're going to take a listen to Karma Chameleon by Culture Club. Karma, 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 karma chameleon.
And that was Karma Chameleon by Culture Club. And that was the first track that imprinted on Ina. Um, And how old were you when you first heard it, do you reckon? It was definitely elementary school. I don't know what age that would have been, six-ish maybe. So we're talking... I don't know, 1981, maybe 1980, 1982, somewhere in there. And what did it make you feel at the time? You know, I think it just opened my mind to this idea of a different way of expressing oneself. Again, I've never, it's not a way that's really worked for me to express myself, but I enjoy and take a lot from other people expressing themselves. And it's definitely, it's fuel for me. It helps me in my writing to have music. You know, I think going on in childhood, I think a lot of music helped me with loneliness. I was an only child. We didn't live with kids in the neighborhood. My school was pretty far away. I didn't have a lot of friends. I had a lot of time to myself. Uh, And music was one of my companions, along with my imagination, uh, that I used to entertain myself. So you were born in Akron, Ohio. Um, and you've given a little, you know, you painted a bit of a picture of, of your early life. But what was that home life like for you? Um, and was there music, you know, you mentioned your, your dad's music, but was there other music in, that, in the house? There was some. You know, my grandfather was really into classical music, my dad's dad, and they didn't live too far away. It was like another world, um, but he would get lost in it. And so it fascinated me. Like, I didn't, it's not something we shared, but I enjoyed, like, the fact that he had this passion. He was very quiet in a lot of ways, and that was, you know, where he escaped to. Um, We haven't talked about, but I was a little kid actor when I was a kid. So sometimes my parents would take me to the set, but sometimes it was other people. And that's how I kind of got into the popular music of the time. So a lot of 80s songs will pop up and I'll remember like listening to that uh, in the car to and from a movie shoot. That definitely was a time and a place where music definitely entered into my world and there's a soundtrack. I mean, that's, I think, what music really is for me. It's, it's a soundtrack to different parts of my life. So tell me more about that. You know, you mentioned, obviously, you were filming for films and TV shows, one of them being Rocky Three. How did you get into that whole world so young? Um, and particularly because, obviously, you mentioned being quite lonely and not sort of hanging out with so many other kids. But then you're doing something that's, yeah, really adult in many ways. Yeah, I always got along well with adults, which is kind of how I got into acting. An agent saw me at a restaurant when I was not even quite five and thought I'd be good for commercials and asked my parents and my parents left it up to me. And I was like, I don't know. I didn't even understand how TV worked. I said I'd give it a try. And for about 10 years, I gave it a try and did a bunch of TV and movies and stuff. You know, it's funny. I was actually twice paid to sing uh, in the sense that I did acting stuff that involved me singing. Favorite story is I was a potato, the voice of a potato anyway, in this cartoon Potato Head Kids uh, that was in the 80s and ran opposite Glow Friends, or as part of Glow Friends Hour, they would have these Potato Head Kids. And so I was Lumpy, the chubby potato. And this one episode, we're in uh, a candy factory where there's been a crime or, you know, some sort of caper. And I have the song. And I was like, uh, I don't sing. Um, and they're like, no problem. And they brought in this voice coach from New York. And she told me, you can sing if you think you can sing. And she worked with me for a few days. And she went back to New York, a broken woman. I, I always <laughs> imagine her like on the street, you know, you know, <laughs> demonized, you know, having left the profession going, I swear I thought anyone could sing. Um, 
but it's funny. And I just watched it on YouTube the other day because I was sharing it with some friends. Um, you know, I still I still treasure that as, as ridiculous an experience as it was um, and as unfortunate as it might have been for everyone else. Um, but they quickly decided that they didn't need my potato character to sing. They put me in the chorus for a couple more episodes, and then they were like, you know what? I don't think anyone is going to notice one fewer potatoes singing. So that was the uh, beginning and end of my professional singing career. Wow. Something I didn't know about you. Um, and was that? did that ever feel like something you could see yourself doing beyond... Um, you know, childhood and, and into your teens? It really wasn't. I really enjoyed it. I had all these great experiences. What it allowed me to do was um, not just play these different roles, which was super fun, but also, you know, parachute into different settings. I filmed a show called The Mississippi that took place uh, in small town Mississippi, and I got to go there as a kid, as a 10-year-old. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, I got to be Rocky's kid in Rocky Three. I got to have all these really neat experiences, but there was something inside me that I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do long-term. I actually credit acting for introducing me to journalism, because in one episode of this show that I was in called Two Marriages, uh, which had a great cast, it was uh, Kirk Cameron before he became successful and long before he... Um, Sort of, we, we went on divergent paths, let's just say that. Um, anyway, long before that. So we had this great cast. It was two families in an Iowa farm town. And uh, in one episode, all the kids, and there's two families, so there's like five or six kids, uh, worked together to make their own neighborhood newspaper. Um, and then from there, like, did that, got introduced to it. Then we started doing one on the set. And then when I went back to my regular school, I started doing one in my neighborhood and school. Uh, so I kind of have known I wanted to be a journalist since then, since like eight or nine, and it really never shifted. So you started a newspaper or a journal for your school as well? Yeah, I started in elementary school. I kind of did this like small thing that we sold door to door that was not a real thing. Um, but then in high school, uh, I was part of this little magnet program that was new and we didn't have one. And I started a school paper. Um, and then all through college, I knew I wanted to be a journalist and wrote for local papers in Ohio where I went to college and then uh, back home in Southern California during the summers. Do you remember what that very first, the one that you said wasn't a legitimate thing, do you remember the, <laughs> the name of that? Yeah, so um, in the show, I think it was Neighborhood News. And then I think I changed it when I did my own to Neighborhood Times, uh, if I recall. Cool. I'm gonna have to go back and look, but that's what that's what I that's what my brain says anyway. Good editorial, cool, you know. Um, so that's that's fascinating because that you know was my next question um, in terms of just you know when were you aware that you wanted to be a journalist? And it sounds like from from very young. Um, so running alongside that, um, was there a first album that had a real impact on you or you know shaped who you are? Um. I'm not sure that there was a, one album as I was a young person, but I definitely think as I was coming into my own, as I was exploring my gender and figuring out that I was transgender, I think music played an incredibly strong role then. Um, I remember this Melissa Etheridge album, her self-titled album. I was listening to it. Uh, I was living in Amsterdam at the time. It was really getting 
to explore things, but you know, my ex-girlfriend and I were really far apart and we'd just seen each other and we're going to be apart for the next three months. And, uh, I was on a bus from Amsterdam to Hamburg, Germany, and there was this Danish skinhead sitting like two seats over, uh, with like a tattoo of a Nazi image. And I was just like sitting there with my Walkman on listening to this Melissa Etheridge album over and over. Um, so it has a special fondness as a uh, spiritual protector in addition to uh, just being an excellent album. Fantastic. And which track do you want us to play? I mean, they're all great songs, but uh, Bring Me Some Water certainly uh, just has that energy that um, Melissa always brings. I remember getting to see her play a free concert uh, in San Francisco downtown in like 1999, we all left our office. Uh, I was writing for a financial wire and we all decided that this was an excuse, uh, worthy of leaving the office. And it was her first concert, I think after having kids or something. Um, and she played this free concert for like an hour and a half and it was amazing. And that this song really just encapsulates to me the energy she brings on stage. So now we're going to take a listen to Bring Me Some Water by Melissa Etheridge. Somebody bring me some water Can't you see I'm burning alive Can't you see my babies Got another lover I don't know how I'm gonna survive Somebody bring me some water Can't you see it's that was Bring Me Some Water by Melissa Etheridge, and that was the track um, that Ina wanted to play from the album, self-titled album, 1988, that was the first album that really had a big impact on her as this sort of uh, spiritual um, refuge as you were traveling on this bus with some unsavory characters. Was that the first time you'd listened to it? I had heard it from my friend uh, in Germany. He had the album and I think I made a copy of it. Sorry, uh, I've since uh, purchased the CD. And, but I made a copy at the time of the cassette and uh, just played it over and over. Um, it was already not new by that point, but it was new to me. And tell, tell us a bit more about high school um, and what that was like for you. And when did you figure out that you were trans? And, and ha what was that like sort of integrating that into your life? So high school and junior high school, uh, my identity was nerd. Like that was all, that was sort of the beginning and end of my uh, gender and sexuality. I, it didn't go much further than that. Um, I felt like I was different, but I didn't really know trans people existed. I certainly didn't know I was trans. Um, and it wasn't until college that I figured that out. So high school was very much defined by being interested in girls, but not not really having a lot of success in part because I was just so uncomfortable on the inside and socially awkward and waiting for somebody else to make the first move and then being oblivious even when they did on the rare occasion they did. Um, but in college, basically, I had a friend who was gay and I had known gay people. I grew up, you know, in LA and in Hollywood, so I certainly knew gay people, but I didn't know a lot of my own peers. Um, people weren't really that out at my high school uh, in the 90s. Um, there was like one person who was out as bisexual a year behind me and maybe some other people that I didn't know about. Um, so I was reading this book my sophomore year of college to better understand him. It was called When Someone You Know Is Gay. And there was this chapter on trans people. At the time, it was divided into transvestites, transsexuals, and drag queens. 
And I started reading this chapter and I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, and it like hit me over the head. It was like a cartoon light bulb moment. Um, and so I started figuring it out. I knew I was somewhere in this whole trans thing. Transgender was barely a word. Um, but I was in the middle of Ohio. I was in the middle of a cornfield in Ohio and there weren't other trans people. Um, so I was like reading online message boards and these ancient horrible books in our library and some online periodicals um, and, and listening to music. So I remember this song. I can't find this one. It was by a band called Skin Up and it was a juicy red apple is nice, but not every apple is red. So if you can find it, uh, that was one of the, the songs that really defined that period of time for me. Okay, well, you've just thrown in another another orange juice for the air, like curveball, you know. <laughs> I didn't prepare you for that at all. But no, that's that's also great just to have as as context. Um, so you know, you you were saying at that point you were studying English at Miami University in, in Ohio. Yeah, so it's called Miami University. It's named for the Miami Indians that lived in that region until they got pushed out and forced to go to Oklahoma. Um, but everyone thinks it's a school in Florida. There is a school in Florida. Uh, this school is actually older. Um, so, but it's basically, it's near Cincinnati and Dayton, but not that close to either of them. So we were a long car ride from civilization, as I would call it. We were in cornfields. Like the college town is pretty vibrant, but also quite a monoculture, pretty conservative. Um, you know, sometimes when I was older, like, you know, junior, senior years, I guess I was in Amsterdam junior year. So in my senior year, we would like, you know, sometimes get in the car and like drive an hour to, uh, the one gay bar in Cincinnati or the one gay dance club in Dayton. Um, but it was, it was pretty far from the queer culture that mm. I was starting to figure out that I had a place in. And after that, how, you know, how did you get into journalism? And were you always aware that you wanted to focus on technology? So I basically was writing from high school all through college. I wrote for any paper around. So one of the cool things was, you know, in Ohio, I was surrounded by all these underfunded papers that loved free labor. And so I interned during the school year at papers like the Hamilton, Ohio Journal News and the Cincinnati Inquirer. And that got me off campus. It allowed me a lot of time in the car to think. Um, and it gave me a taste of it. Um, at the time, it was just, you know, whatever assignment they would give me. So during college, it was a lot of, you know, city council and local interest and that sort of thing. But I, I had a sense that uh, a couple things. One, I wanted to write about something that people were really passionate about. But that could have been courts. It could have been sports. There were lots of things. But I also had this uh, understanding of the way the business was changing of journalism and that there really wasn't much value being placed on general news to our detriment as a society, but it was nonetheless happening. Um, and so I got interested in two things that served me very well. One was new media. So Love newspapers, got such great training at some of the big papers that I interned at. The Plain Dealer in Cleveland was a great paper at the time, but I sensed they weren't doing very well. Um, and also I got a sense that like if you had a specialty, particularly in business, um, that you were much more valued as a reporter. And I kind of had this sense that, you know, I wanted to dedicate my career to this craft, but I also wanted to be appreciated and be able to support myself, etc. cetera. Um, and so I pushed for 
jobs in technology. And it started in Orange County after college when my first job was at the Orange County Register. And my job was covering this small town, city council, etc. But I just sort of moved into the business desk. I managed to talk my way into like a three-week stint on the business desk and then basically never left. And my next job was a full-time beat covering business and then pretty quickly technology. And I just, you know, have continued to do that and had opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I'd stuck with any other field in journalism. Mm. Did you have anxieties over how your transition might affect your career? And how did that end up unfolding for you? And and did you have a roadmap at the time? Um, I didn't, uh, certainly not initially have a roadmap. Uh, You know, I, I was very anxious about how these worlds would come together. I had a career as a journalist. I'd been out as trans to my friends in social circles, as long as I'd been a professional journalist, they were both happening, but they were very divided, um, which is exhausting. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, it wasn't exactly leading to lives, but a little bit. Um, And, you know, I had this hope that I could bring those worlds together, but no clear vision for what that might look like. I was really worried at the time that if I came out as trans and transitioned, that that would be the story that all people would ever see was a trans person and that would become the subject of the story. And part of being a journalist is kind of fading into the background, or at least at the time I thought part of being a journalist was fading into the background and telling other people's stories. Um, I do think it's important that you have to be able to check yourself enough that other people's stories is coming through. Um, But it turned out that I could bring those together, but it just wasn't clear to me. So I decided I, you know, waited and waited um, for at the time what felt like a really long time. After my partner AJ and I got married in 2002, I was like, you know, if my family can deal with this, I think readers and subjects of stories can deal with this. And so I made the decision that I wasn't sure if it was going to work. I wasn't sure how it was going to work, but I needed to figure it out. That my life involved me being authentically who I was And if there wasn't room for journalism, I I should find that out now and move forward. Um, To my great joy, it it was hard, it was challenging, but, you know, it wasn't the things that I feared it was. So Mm. I wrote a letter to my coworkers at the time at CNET. I'd been there for a few years. I felt very comfortable there. I'd worked there as male, and I was like, hey, there's something I need you all to know. Like, I'm the same person who I've always been, but I'm also trans and going to start working as female, like some things are going to change. I've got a new name. I've got a new pronoun. Some things won't, you know, I still love ping pong. I'm still the same, you know, wisecracking pain in the butt, um, which I still am. And, uh, they were great. They didn't really get it. Um, I had to kind of figure out what it would look like, but they all were basically like, we accept you. We want to get it. (laughs) We don't get it, but we want to get it. Um, And then, you know, within a week or two, I sent a similar letter to all the people that I interacted with. Um, I was just switching from covering Apple primarily to covering Microsoft. And I actually sped things up a little bit because I was like, if I'm going to take on a new coverage area, I don't want to do that and then come out six months later. Um, So I so I sort of transitioned before I was thought I was ready um, in a sense. I mean, I was ready in a lot of other senses. Um, And you know, it was, it was great. I think there was no better industry in a lot of ways mm. to do this in than tech. I think being in the Bay Area and being in tech, like, it was different. Like, there, aren't, there weren't other trans reporters, but it wasn't unheard of. Like, all the companies I'd covered had people who transitioned. Um, 
So there was that. And then the other dynamic that I think really helped is, especially in business journalism, these companies want coverage. So, you know, I could show up, you know, with green hair and blue makeup and they'd be like, okay, we still want to tell our story. Let's ignore the, that. So even if they weren't comfortable, they had to keep that kind of on the inside. And it actually wasn't talked about. Like, I'm amazed how when I look back, like, I didn't really talk about being trans at the time. Now I'm very vocal about it because I feel like I'm in this, you know, very privileged position and so many trans people are struggling and don't have access to the uh, acceptability that I have. And I want to share that. I want all of the community to feel as accepted and comfortable in their position as I feel in mine. And I've been surrounded by great places to work. CNET was great. Uh, when I left and was at All Things D working for Kara Swisher, I mean, she's very out uh, as a lesbian and that was a new level of acceptance. And then being at Axios where I'm not even the only trans person in the newsroom. I have trans coworkers, I have non-binary coworkers. Um, and feel very supported and feel like we have a culture where being trans and queer is a part of it, even though, you know, I have plenty of coworkers who aren't part of that community. Um, it's just a very diverse group and a very accepting group. And I love the fact that I get to be visibly queer and on NPR and on Axios on HBO and even Al Jazeera. I'm like, if Al Jazeera wants a Jewish queer trans woman on to talk about tech like that can only be good for the world do you feel like you've seen more lgbtq representation in media and journalism since you started out definitely i mean when i started i didn't know another transgender mainstream beat reporter there was a woman i knew who wrote for a baseball publication who had come out there was an oil and gas reporter that I didn't know of, but was like, man, she came out in the oil and gas industry. So if she can do it, I can do it. Um, and then I got a lot of advice from a real pioneer. Uh, her name's Donna Cartwright. She was a copy editor at the New York Times, and she had transitioned sort of not public facing because copy editors don't get seen by the public in the way that reporters do, but in a huge newsroom. And so um, that was kind of it, you know, you could count on one hand the number of trans reporters uh, in mainstream media. Fast forward to like right now and a group of journalists that I have nothing to do with other than supporting them this year formed the Trans Journalists Association. So I've been a long time involved with the LGBT journalist group, NLGJA, um, but that's primarily a lesbian and gay group. They've tried to be more uh, trans inclusive over the years. Um, but this is an organization that started up with a couple hundred people who identify as both trans and journalists. Not all of them are journalists at mainstream outlets. Not all of them, uh, you know, have have the same access to opportunities, but many do. Um, and so, you know, I see a whole new generation. And there, the difference is, for a while, there were more trans journalists, but they were all similar in that, you know, they'd kind of gotten where they were established themselves and then transitioned. What you have now is you have this incredible group coming out that, um, you know, they're, they were out in high school or college or even earlier, you know, people are coming out in elementary school and they just want to be journalists. And so they're, they're not coming out in the newsroom. They're coming to the newsroom as who they've been for a long time. Um, and that's great to see. And I think all of us are benefiting from this generation, whether it's trans folks or non-binary folks or lesbian and gay folks, just having that 
experience mm. is benefiting newsrooms. Now, that said, there's still a lot of public problematic coverage. I wouldn't say that things are good in terms of LGBT coverage. I would say they're less bad than they were, and that's due to the hard work of both LGBTQ journalists and the organizations and community that push back. Um, but you still pe see people misgendered. You still see a lot of simplistic stories. Uh, so there's a lot of work still to be done. But there's definitely a larger number of people, both out trans and LGBT uh, journalists, as well as allies that are pushing for that change. So in this age of fake news and blurred lines between editorial and advertorial, um, tell us why editorial independence and transparency are so important to you. Well, it's everything. I mean, you either have journalism or you don't. You yeah. don't really have something in between. Something in between is, you know, advertising disguised to look like journalism. Um, so um, one of the challenges is the business models for journalism are largely broken. I've been super fortunate to work with some of the few really good business people in journalism, but in general, our industry is not known for having great businesses. And part of that became from, you know, newspapers used to be these little monopoly fiefdoms that worked, even though they didn't take a lot of brilliance. Like, they were basically the best method of delivering local advertising. And so if you wanted to sell hardware in that city, that's what you did. And if you wanted to sell your car, you put an ad in the classifieds. And it was this weird bundle that worked but didn't have a lot of inherent connection. There wasn't much connection between I want to read about sports and city council and whatever, and I want to buy a truck. It just happened that you had this clever, convenient vehicle that delivered that. When the internet came along, eBay was a better way to sell stuff. Monster.com was a better way to find a job. And that bundle that had worked got disintermediated, and basically it left journalism in a very challenging place that the industry is still struggling to find its way out of. And so that results in a lot of bad things. It results in uh, local newspapers really struggling. And, and that's where we're hit the most. I mean, you have some national newspapers in the US, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal doing well. You have new media in both uh, broad areas like Axios uh, or BuzzFeed News, but you have very little success at the local level. Mm. Um, and that's where people's schools and communities and local governments are. And we need that. And yet we don't really know how to pay for it. And so that's a problem. And you're seeing that in this election. You're seeing some sites show up that are purporting to be local journalism. And what they're really trying to do is sell a political message or sell a corporate message. But because they know there's that dearth of local news, if they provide even a veneer of that, they're going to get some readers. Um, so that's something we as a society still have to figure out, whether it's nonprofit uh, or some measure of government funding, although that's particularly problematic. I think there are some ways, if you build in some safeguards and, and make sure that the government isn't directly influencing the news. Uh, but we definitely have a system that isn't producing enough news mm. at a time when we need more information than ever before and we need more people who are professional at helping us understand truth. You know, one of the things that I think is equally dismaying as the lack of good journalism is the fact that uh, we have two different worlds in the U.S. And you, depending on what channel of the TV you tune into, the world looks very different. 
it used to be when I was growing up, we were always a divided country, but I felt like there were differences of opinion. People had different perspectives on how the country should work, but we all agreed on what it looked like. Now, I genuinely think you have two different experiences, and there's more than two, there's myriad, but two fundamentally different views of the world. If you tune on CNN versus Fox News, it's like you're hearing about two completely different countries with almost no overlap, and mm. that's very dangerous for a society. I don't think we can be functional if we can't agree on what the facts are. Well, so you've obviously brought up the fundamental um, question of truth, you know, which is definitely uh, being challenged right now. Um, and as you've said, you know, you now have this very divided um, experience, but I'd say it, it's fractured even beyond that. Um, and, you know, a lot in part due to Silicon Valley's uh, influence and, and the social media companies and the fact they've gone, you know, unregulated for so long. Um, I mean, what's your hope in the future just regarding some of that? Do you think that can be reined in? It's really challenging. I mean, there's not, again, part of the challenge is you don't even have agreement on what the problem is. So there have been these hearings on Capitol Hill about big tech, and there's actually some bipartisan sense that there are problems with big tech, but there's actually not when it comes to what is the problem. Uh, to a lot of members of the Republican Party, the problem is that tech companies are biased against conservatives, even though empirically there's no evidence of that. And if anything, we see tech companies bending over backwards to change the way that they would run their sites so they can avoid being accused of being biased. Um, and then you have folks on the left, and not exclusively on the left, but largely from the left, criticizing both the mechanisms by which social media works, but also the absolute power that a lot of big tech companies have, whether it's Google or Apple or Facebook or Amazon, they all have these spheres of tremendous power. Um, and that's starting to get looked at. And again, there are critics on both sides of the political aisle, um, but they're not always focused on the divisiveness and the disinformation. It's often, why aren't you featuring my content more? <laughs> Or why are you, you know, violating my privacy, which is an important issue, mm. or, um, you know, monopolizing your market. Those are all important issues. Um, but if there's fundamental misinformation, if, if uh, conspiracy theories are flourishing, that's a separate issue that really needs its own set of solutions that's not about whether someone is or isn't a monopoly, which is a lot of the focus, or whether I have privacy and control over my personal information, also an important issue. But if the information I'm seeing isn't legit, again, it's, it's fracturing the discussion that we need to be having. If if people can be manipulated, led down these paths towards conspiracies. And some of the tech companies are working on some of these problems. I don't think it's as simple as they don't care, um, but I do think it's more complicated than they're doing their best and this is the best we have. You know, there needs to be pressure to, uh, to build systems that are aware that there are people trying to manipulate them. Yeah. Well, so you kindly brought me along to a Sesame Street interview um, on a totally different subject that you were doing around uh, the anniversary for Axios. Who are some of the other heroes that you've met um, and interviewed along the way? Well, you know, you started with the best. It, it, it's hard <laughs> to beat Cookie Monster and uh, 
his friends, but, and that was a great day. I'm glad you were there for it. Um, you know, I've gotten to talk to so many fascinating people. Uh, I'll start with the most recent. I was talking with uh, Jennifer Doudna, who just won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for her work on CRISPR, the gene editing software. But we had, or gene editing technology that lets you basically, it's like a DNA scissors to make changes. Um, and we talked not only about the implications of her specific work, but also about the role of science in society, the challenges women face in science. We just had a great chat. Unfortunately, you know, we had this 45 minute chat and a small snippet of it makes it onto the air, but it was it was great. Um, I've spent a lot of time with Bill Gates, some time with Melinda Gates. I got to interview Steve Jobs when when he was alive, and we had a contentious relationship. But I certainly gained a deep appreciation for uh, some of the strengths that he had as a business leader that were unmatched, uh, even if we didn't always uh, get along personally. Um, and so many, I mean, really everyone in technology, but also, you know, I've been to the Lego factory and talked to them about how they're trying to make Legos more sustainable in the coming years. Uh, when I was an intern, I got to go on the zero gravity jet, uh, and be weightless. Uh, so journalism, I've had so many incredible experiences. Um, lots of, uh, world leaders. Uh, I was in Davos before the world turned to coronavirus this past year and got to meet, uh, Jane Goodall. That was amazing. Um, all, all sorts of different experiences. One of the things I love about being a journalist is the opportunity to have all these experiences. I feel like I've still gotten to have that during the pandemic, but it's definitely not the same when it's, uh, over zoom versus getting to travel around the world. And just a couple of years ago, you were inducted into the LGBT Journalist Hall of Fame. How did that feel? I mean, it was an incredible and is an incredible honor, and I feel very fortunate. And I'm also very cognizant of the people whose work without I wouldn't have gotten to that place. So I fought hard um, to make sure that Donna Cartwright, who I mentioned earlier, who was his copy editor at the New York Times, that she has since been added to the Hall of Fame, and I feel like that's really important. Most people don't know her name. Um, and then also for the next generations, you know, there's just an incredible sense for me of responsibility. I see our generation as just a bridge to this next generation. We just need to hand the world over to them. They're, I'm so confident of the world in their hands and so scared of the world in the hands that it's currently in, in terms of leaders in general. Like the older generation, uh, this isn't a political statement. It's just about, broadly speaking, the generation in power, you know, isn't isn't embracing the future, isn't mm. protecting our planet. Yeah. And the next generation is like, you know, this is nonsense. Like, how can you be focused on anything else? How can you not care about this? And so I look forward to the day that, you know, the preservation of our planet isn't a political issue, that human rights aren't a political issue. Some things in my mind shouldn't be up for debate. Like as a journalist, I believe firmly in telling multiple sides to the story uh, and sometimes there are. Sometimes things are complex, and I love complexity, and I embrace complexity. Um, but sometimes there aren't multiple viewpoints or multiple valid viewpoints on a subject. Or sometimes there are, but they're right and wrong. Like, human rights, to me, shouldn't be up for debate. But we live at a time and a place where they very much are. Mm -hmm. And there are political parties and governments and individuals for whom people's humanity is still up for discussion and debate. What music would you like to send into space, Ina? Um, 
Well, if we're gonna if we're gonna greet the aliens, we should gently ease them into our planet. I think we we should help them, you know, adjust to the fact that we're maybe not this perfect species. So um, REM, I feel like, is one of the best things we have to offer as a planet. Uh, and I was trying to think of a song of theirs, so I decided "Shiny Happy People" might, you know, get the aliens in the right mood. Perfect. Okay, we're gonna take a listen to "Shiny Happy People" by REM. And that was Shiny Happy People by R.E.M. Um, and that was the song, the music that Ina would send into space. Um, and just tell us again why, Ina. You know, we've been sending bits of our culture out into space for actually decades. Uh, they, they sent out, I think, a phonograph early on in the space era. And so, you know, I think this, this idea that we have to explain ourselves to civilization that we've never interacted with is fascinating. I don't have any sense of whether there are aliens out there, but um, I want them to, uh, you know, not destroy us, maybe, maybe help us, uh, and also appreciate the best we have as a humanity, as a culture. And I wouldn't say that R.E.M. is, you know, I wouldn't be so bold as to say it's the best band on the planet, but it's one of my favorites. And uh, that's what I'd share with the aliens. We'd definitely be giving them a very shiny and optimistic view of our humanity with that song, which, you know, I think, yeah, why not? We, we can only go, we can only go up from here. So you touched on it a little bit, you know, just before um, with everything that's going on in the world right now. And it does seem to be a sort of melting pot societally, socially, politically, environmentally. And it's certainly been keeping you busy. Um, what is your hope for humanity? And I know that's a it's a broad sort of um, statement. But, you know, what is it that you you hope going forward? And I think this is a challenge for me and for everyone, but to, you know, look at our fellow human beings and treat them with the kindness and dignity that we want to be treated with and not to assume the otherness. I think we've been treating too many of our fellow human beings like others rather than our brothers and sisters and siblings of non-binary gender. And I would love to see us view each other uh, more in that light and recognize the common threats to all of us and work together. And I, I have hope and I have faith, uh, certainly that's been tested over the past several years, but that's still my hope. Very sadly, we've moved to the part of the show where we have to imagine a world without you, which is an impossibility. Um, but have you thought about the song that you would like to have play at your memorial? Um, the one that came to mind is I'm Still Standing by Elton John. Elton John's been another uh, sort of musical inspiration for me, obviously, for a lot of people. Um, and when I think of I'm Still Standing, I, that music played uh, when Ryan White's story, a young kid who fought to go to school despite the fact that he had AIDS, it helped inspire me. I became a young AIDS activist. Uh, I played a kid with AIDS on Mr. Belvedere, and then I learned about Ryan White's story and preparing for that. Um, and was a little AIDS activist running around LA as a as a high school student. But I also love the idea of, you know, it's kind of funny to be at a funeral and have a song playing that's I'm still standing because that would kind of freak people out if uh, you were still standing at your own funeral. Um, but I hope, I hope that, you know, I've inspired others and my legacy would be that kindness and that 
openness. We're all here for a short period of time and our real impact is how we influence others. So now we're going to take a listen to I'm Still Standing by Elton John. That was I'm Still Standing by Elton John, and that was the track that Ina Freed would have play at her memorial. Um, so have you thought much about your funeral? I mean, is that something that's ever kind of crossed your mind? Some people really think about it and others, are, you know, just don't want to even imagine it. I don't think so much about my funeral per se. I think a lot about am I comfortable with the way I'm living life? If this is the last month, week, day, am I doing the things that matter to me? Um, And certainly I don't think any of us do it every day, but I certainly try and live my life both without regrets, but also with a sense of purpose. So I definitely think about, you know, what are the things that are most important to me? What is the impact I want to have? And making sure that I'm doing that um, as much as possible. Even in this, you know, crazy pandemic time, I'm still like, how can we make the best of it? How can I be the best parent? How can I keep doing journalism? How can I have fun? Having fun is really important to me as well. And that's kind of where my head tends to be at. And I think that's really important. Um, and, you know, it, it so informs the intention behind what you do, because if you're considering the long view and, you know, a time when you're not going to be here, it's like, well, with the time that we have, how do we make the most positive impact in whatever way, big or small, you know, whatever area that we're working in? Um, so I, I definitely really feel that with, you know, everything you do and the way you approach things. Um, what would you say that you're the most proud of? I'm sure there are there are so many th- things that come to mind, but is there something you really feel, you know, particularly proud of? I mean, I feel, again, that I've been so fortunate. I've had so much privilege in my life that there are so few people of my generation, particularly trans people, who've gotten to be out there and do what it is they love. I feel like I'm proud that I noticed that, pointed out, and create space for others so that hopefully, you know, the next generation, like, looks back and is like, you know, I, I don't, I don't even remember not having this opportunity. You know, I think it's one thing to say, uh, I want to be recognized for having done that, but it's actually even better if the barrier you're talking about has been so thoroughly knocked down that nobody even notices that it was there before. I don't know that we'll get there, um, but I definitely feel like I've had the opportunity to be exactly who I am and still do my job, and I can't help but think that that has had a positive impact. At least I hope so. And you have um, a son, Harvey, um, and, a, and a partner, AJ. And so, you know, when I say this, when I ask this last question about the album you'd pass on to the next generation, I mean, it specifically can be for Harvey. So is there a record that you would like to pass on to him? I hope to pass on to Harvey uh, a lot of things, a legacy of kindness and of having fun and all kinds of things. I think as far as musically, I'd probably share the Indigo Girls because there's no band I've seen in concert more and listened to more than the Indigo Girls. Uh, I'd probably pick their self-titled album and the song Kid Fears. Uh, And if I could pick the version, I'd pick the version that's on the album because Michael Stipe from R.E.M. uh, has this beautiful 
uh, cameo in it. Um, so that's probably the song I'd pick. Perfect, Ina. Okay, so we're going to end in just a minute. Um, thank you so much for sharing your orange juice for the ears with our listeners. Um, and we're going to play out uh, with Kid Fears by Indigo Girls uh, with Michael Stipe, of course, guest uh, singing on that. Um, but just the last couple of questions. Uh, you know, you talk about a legacy of kindness, which I think is really powerful. Um, are there any other words of advice that you would like to pass on, you know, in general? Uh, it doesn't just have to be to Harvey. I think for me, the importance of faith in a bigger picture, we haven't talked a lot about it, uh, which is funny because one of the things that most characterize my music taste is just it's so weird and eclectic. I always describe it as something that everyone will hate. But one huge <laughs> component of my music is uh, faith music, um, both Jewish rock. Uh, I'm Jewish. My partner uh, is a Jew by choice and we're raising Harvey Jewish. Um, so I love Jewish spiritual music, um, but my ex-girlfriend was Christian, and one of the ways I worked on understanding her was through music. And so um, I have a lot of uh, contemporary Christian music <laughs> that's part of what fuels me. Um, and my partner, as I mentioned, is uh, Jew by choice. He grew up right-wing Christian, and music has helped us sort of find ourselves and... Um, it's nice. Uh, one of the bands I love the most, Jars of Clay, has come to embrace a similar conception of faith. Like they come at it from a really different perspective. But I think the best part of spiritual music is that using music to bring us to our higher self. Um, and so I've used spiritual music both when I'm at my lowest points, when I'm really struggling, when I want to believe there's something bigger that I can get through whatever this hardship is. I love spiritual music to celebrate every day. A big part of Judaism is sort of, you know, welcoming and celebrating the day, celebrating the Sabbath. Um, you know, on Saturday mornings, I'll sometimes play uh, Jewish music for Harvey and I, and it's a really nice bonding time. So that's probably something else I'd pass on is both my faith and spirit through music. And what is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the ear choices? I know you said very eclectic that you couldn't ever pull them all together, but if you had to give me a thread, what would it be? Um, it would be like Joseph's coat of many colors, I think. I mean, how else do you combine uh, the Indigo Girls, R.E.M., Jars of Clay, Rick Recht, uh, who's a Jewish singer, like, you know, other than they all make me feel good and they all make me feel better. If I'm bad, they make me feel better, and if they're good, they make me feel better. So there's the thread. Perfect. And what is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done uh, and the work that you're continuing to do? I mean, I think, hopefully, a better sense of truth and justice. Um, I think we can't get to the world that we want to get without more uh, love, without more fairness, without more justice for our fellow human beings. And, you know, if I've pushed the world any closer to that, then I feel good. And, um, you know, for the ways that I uh, have shared my grumpiness and frustration with the world, that's a negative, and I try and uh, keep that to a minimum. So I would say uh, love, truth, and justice. Ina, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and now we're going to take a listen to Kid Fears by Indigo Girls uh, with Michael Stipe. I 
little girl How much I 